Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. really very exciting to me because we're speaking with Sam Sanker. And for those of you who don't know, and you probably should know, he's pretty cool. You know, Sam, I usually call, you know, all the ladies were badasses, but hey, <laughs> and we got a badass here that um, is a big <laughs> honor for me to talk with today. And so you don't know, uh, I'm going to start off with Sam was the deputy chief counsel of the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill commission who led the Obama administration's investigation of the blowout. Now, I think so many of us are very familiar with the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill and that you're also Earth Justice, which so many of us know, and the just amazing work that they do, senior vice president. So I had to sing some accolades there, Sam. It's pretty cool to have you on the phone with us. Thank you and being a part of this today. Well, you're welcome. I'm, of course, a huge admirer as well, and I view us as all on the same team, and you being, well, just a hero to so many of us. Well, you know, it, it's, it's always been a labor of love. It's, I think that we forget often how connected we are completely to the environment, and our oceans, and our water, and our land, and our air, and our food, and I just for me, can't think of anything better to advocate for because it's about all of us, especially when we talk about the environment. And, you know, um, we're getting ready to come up on Earth Day here on April 22nd, 50 years of Earth Day. And we're going to talk a little bit about the BP oil spill. And it's been 10 years since that spill, which was April 20th. And I just kind of put together in my head that disaster happened two days before Earth Day. Yep, and you can, uh, there's another way to think about it. The well blew out on April 20th, but the rig didn't go down and the oil didn't start going all over the place, really, until the 22nd. So in a way, it really is 10 years on the dot. That's just, you know, uh, I don't know where I was. Now, I was down on the ground there, and we'll get to that in a minute, but I don't think I made that connection until right this second. So I'm just going to open up here and just go right at it. Um, as you served under President Obama's administration and looking at what's going on with the current administration, I have a couple of things to put out there. What is it that we learned or haven't learned under two different administrations in environmental disasters and how dangerous are all these current environmental rollbacks to the environment? Wow. Well, there's, there's a lot to be said, and, and drawing a contrast um, between the two administrations, it, it couldn't, first of all, it couldn't be a, a more stark contrast. Um, and yet at mm-hmm. the same time, we see that even the, the most, um, even the most liberal presidential administrations that we've seen have still fallen short when it comes to delivering the environmental protections that we really need. Why? Because there's a huge, very powerful industry um, that has a tremendous ability to 
to uh, sell a narrative um, and to create political momentum behind its interests as well. So the first thing I think, yeah, we've seen a huge change uh, in, the, in a bad way between those administrations. These rollbacks are terrible. And that even under um, the best administrations that we've seen, there's still a lot of work to be done and the needle is never quite where we need it to be. Um, you know, uh, there's so many rollbacks going right now. Um, and one of the things that's been shocking and incredibly distressing is that many of them are happening even right now during the midst of this pandemic. Um, Correct. In the midst of the pandemic, right, the, the administration's rolling out new regulations and, you know, starting comment periods on new regulations and saying, for example, on the, the EPA's science rule, you have 30 days to respond to this, uh, this idea we've got. And at the end of that 30 days, we're going to comment and go back to doing our thing. But really now is the 30 days that you want people to be engaged in your rulemaking? This is the time? So the, the, this administration's um, bad faith and uh, allegiance to industry is just beyond comprehension. Uh, you know, I get inundated with that all the time, and I, 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 that is something that I definitely wanted to, to start with because people will say to me, but under another administration, we'll see a different response. And the BP oil spill um, was, you know, horrific. And one thing that I try to do, Sam, is when I'm down on the ground, and I was down there for eight, nine weeks um, at a time, is I embed myself within a community because I believe, and I often come from a very common sense lay person's perspective. I don't like to get caught up in the politics. Uh, people start losing trust there because they don't know who to believe or trust. And um, I try to get them to be prepared and involved. And one thing that I found interesting down there was the fishermen that Oftentimes, you know, they're the ones that are out on that water. They live it, they breathe it, they fish it. They know when storms are coming. They've got this instinctual understanding of what problems are or how to clean up problems and community involvement. But oftentimes that isn't listened to. Do you think that, you know, it is helpful in big disasters like that, that maybe that the the higher ups, which would be, you know, the answer, the political side, but even the positions that you were in, gathering and taking information from that community, from the locals, from the fishermen, who would know that area like the back of the you, you, you know, you couldn't be more right. And I'll, I'll, you know, when we were on the commission, um, we did a lot of work directly with the folks in the communities. In fact, our report um, included uh, every few pages, these sections called Voices from the Gulf, where we'd really report and describe the experiences of people on the ground and what they were seeing and feeling as a result of the disaster and as a result of the response afterwards. Because in many cases, uh, the response afterwards didn't really attend to the actual needs on the ground of folks. It was done in many ways to, to sort of make good theater and, and do good politics, but didn't always address those needs. Um, that was the, the commission. And one of the things that really attracted me to Earth Justice is we work in the same way. It's as a result of being a legally oriented and a litigation oriented organization. We have clients and you'll never see a case that's Earth Justice versus anything. We represent people. Mm -hmm. and we represent communities, Native American tribes, associations of fishermen, craw fishermen in the Gulf, 
Um, and by working hand in hand with those folks, we think that number one, our advocacy is better because it's not just people making podcasts that find more compelling stories and real people, but also judges and juries and people, people hear those things and it resonates. So uh, it makes us better lawyers. It makes us more effective. Um, and it really grounds us in doing the right thing for the people on the ground. Yeah. And, and they knew so much. I mean, I would listen to what they would say in the community in Hinkley, California and the groundwater contamination. And they knew what they saw and they saw the green water. They saw the two headed frog. They would be told, you know, this is normal and it's safe. They knew, but yet at the same time that they were conflicted. Oh, wait a minute. I don't want to say something because I could upset the community or I'm not a doctor or scientist. And so I think it's really important for people to be prepared and to, to know they, that's their backyard. They can get involved. They can speak up and they don't have to be a scientist or anything to be a human and to know that they've got a situation and they are the ones that can change the course. And I saw that in full gear when we were down on the BP oil spill. And, you know, one day I just want to ask you, because uh, at that time, it's something else that we were looking at was the core exit. So many of the locals were saying, why would we not bring like the military in and, you know, capture um, the oil versus doing another chemical added to it? And did that help the problem or did it make it worse? Well, you know, the, the real issue was we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> well, that was honest. So, you know, when I say we, I'd like to think the commission did, but the government right. and the communities down there, when we had this giant oil spill, somebody said, well, we got this stuff, corrects it. How about we try that? We didn't have a real careful understanding of what its health effects would be, what its effects on the environment would be, and certainly not in the volumes that we were using it. So that just goes to the fact that this is a disaster that nobody was prepared for. Not the oil industry, not the government, not the regulators. This was something that nobody was ready for. And when you, that was the single most important lesson. The single most important lesson from the whole investigation was that people didn't think it could happen. And because they didn't think it could happen, they didn't get ready for it. And guess what? Ten years later, they still don't think it's going to happen. And they're still not ready for it. You know, it takes three, at least three things to really be ready for these, these kinds of events. One is you have to have a proper understanding of what the risks are. How likely is this bad thing to happen? And the second thing is you have to understand what the impacts will be. Who's going to be hurt? What's going to be hurt? Why? And then the third thing is you got to have the will to put the resources into being ready. I'd say we failed on all counts back in the day. I'm pretty sure we failed on those kind of, I mean, not pretty sure. I know if anything, we've gone backwards on those things. So to understand yeah. the risk, you have to be honest with yourself. You have to be humble. And if there's anything the oil industry in the Gulf is, it's not humble. Um, there's no, there was then, I mean, I found it very interesting that people would say, we never thought this would happen. And then they would say, but it wouldn't happen on our rigs. I said, so you thought it would never happen. Now all you're doing is saying it won't happen to me. That's crazy. Right. The second thing is you have to understand what the impacts will be. And the government 
had been hamstrung in doing environmental impact statements, in reviewing the human health impacts of all the chemicals and the the products that are being pulled out of the ground. Nobody really wanted to look on what the impacts were in the marine environment. Everybody wanted to look at one little bitty piece of it at a time and say, well, this rig over here, this isn't too bad. Nobody wanted to look at the big picture impact. How does the oil industry fare relative to the fishing industry? What would be the impacts if this happened on these other industries? So we didn't know the risks. We didn't know the impacts. And then even when we did have some information, we didn't have the will to impose the responsibility on people. Think about this. We had a giant company out there that caused a huge disaster. Now, did they pay enough? Did they do enough? Did they restore enough? I would say no. But at least they had money. If it had been any one of the smaller operators that out there drilling in the deep water, they wouldn't. They would have just gone bankrupt. And even earlier, it would have turned to the taxpayers to solve all the problems. The taxpayers, the local Mm. communities, they're the ones that suffer. And we are not in any way differently positioned on that. We're basically trusting the oil industry to do the right thing after these events. There's no real system for making sure they, they will or that they can. Right. Well, you know, that's, again, you bring up great words, like the word trust. You know, I've always had a problem with, you know, how we throw around trust and and even not, because uh, we've been dealing with the big pg fires out here. Somebody had asked, how can you trust them? And it's like, you don't ever trust them, but you learn them um, and you watch them. And I think at some point, something happens enough where we will constantly pay some attention, but it's not about that you can ever trust them. I've always been perplexed, though, with companies, um, how they don't understand that they and the people together are all a part of keeping a system moving and keeping the economic wheel moving and why they don't just more readily put safety first. Yeah. Well, we have, um, I, I say you can't blame them in the same way. I, I can't blame my dog from, from stealing the cheese off the counter like she did last night. <laughs> So you got to do some of the thinking for them and you, you, you can't expect them. She's a dog. She's going to do dog stuff. I just, it was my leaving the cheese right where she could get it. So with the industry, you have to understand their perspective. And when they say, trust us, we'll self-regulate. That's when you have to say, no, that's correct. Saying you just put that cheese right there and trust me, it's not going to happen. And and we have, I don't blame them for having that attitude that trust us, we've got it. We'll be safe. It won't be a problem. Nothing bad is going to happen. But I do Mm -hmm. the regulators, the government and the the folks who took the handouts from the oil industry in order, you know, and in return gave them their trust. They it's, it's easy if you're a politician or a regulator or a local official to say, well, it, it all seems so easy right now, but we rely on them to have the public trust in mind and the public has to hold them accountable for it. That means when things don't go right, correct. go to your elected officials, vote. You know, with the people, um, is it, do we get comfortable and complacent? And I talk about this in my book, Superman's not coming. And I think so many of us think that there's some entity out there that's magically either prepared or foresees it's coming. And when it does, you know, we get frustrated, but I, I feel that we, the people, can't be complacent. We need to see that we can't be complacent. 
and be involved. And it's so hard when they've lost trust because they don't know who to believe. There's always some kind of split, which frustrates me in a disaster and it turns politics, you know, political. Um, and then they, they don't know who to trust or believe and getting them to trust and believe in themselves and what they are experiencing in their own backyard. And in every community I've dealt with, even in the BP oil spill, this is what I think tears at their very fiber is they're conflicted on who to trust and who to believe. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. Um, especially these days where there's a steady diet of misinformation and um, out there, number one, and then people aren't just putting out different messages. They're actively questioning the integrity of other people out there. Um, it makes it really hard to think about how to think and how to approach these things. Um, I do think that, uh, that we are currently experiencing what it means to have a real distrust in science. I, I think we are not, um, you know, we're seeing in the pandemic we've got right now what happens when you um, don't pay attention to predictions and to requests to be prepared um, to the things where, you know, in the moment it doesn't seem worth doing anything about it. But the, that voice in the back of your head is saying, you, you, better, you better get ready for this. Your point about people being really prepared and willing to, to sort of stand up is really important as well. We uh, at Earth Justice, there is no substitute for an empowered community that we can represent. We, we can't, uh, every, we find over and over and over again that our biggest successes are where our clients are really determined and dug in for the long haul, whether it's the Standing Rock Sioux uh, or, Correct. or anyone, anyone else out there. Um, you know, a good lawyer can only go as far as the client's ready to, to stay with us. Right. And then, you know, as we've talked like about trust and preparedness, you, you bring up science and I, I find science um, interesting. Um, I've had many, a conversation, I don't want to say argument with scientists um, not too long ago about a groundwater contamination and saying, let's be honest, Aaron, you don't have all the data to conclude because I'm not the scientist and that's fine but you don't have all the data to conclude that this chemical can in fact harm these people as they say they've been harmed. And I said, that's fair. One thing that I think we all need to be do is very open and honest and not afraid to say you're right or afraid to say I was wrong. There's the, the transparency. If companies would just stand up and say, you know, we fucked up pretty bad here. <laughs> people will like stop and go, Oh my God. But on the science side, it's always this, this doubt or you don't know what you're talking about. And so I, my response to him was, you are correct. I don't know. I don't have all that information to make that conclusion that it can harm them. But here's what's interesting. You don't have all the data either to conclude that it can't. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Absolutely. We have communities and their direct long-term association to a polluted environment and you won't look at them where you have the numbers in front of you that could change the science and so I think at some level a lot of our policies 
And everything that we did as a country to become who we are today and all the rules and regulations and policies and, and science is if we're going to still rely on that information and how we run a system back in that day to run it into a modern day, I say we're antiquated and we'll have more failures. Your, your point, the point you made about where should the burden of proof lie is really, really important. Mm -hmm. for the, and this is a very broad brush I'm painting. The way our laws and regulations and everything are structured is that it's the burden on the public to prove that something out there is a problem for them. Rarely do we say, before you cause an impact, you have to prove that you're right about it. Before, before you do something, you have to prove that this is going to be safe, that this is going to be okay, and that nobody's going to get sick. Um, and that's not, for example, the way our chemical regulatory laws work. Correct. Quick check. You got to, you know, even the new Toxic Substances Control Act, it's basically innocent until proven guilty. Um, and when, I, when you're dealing with industries that can generate new chemicals by the thousands per year, you can't expect any system to be actively checking everything for every possible problem on the front end. Um, mm -hmm. You have to move more towards a system where we recognize that uh, we really need a clear understanding of risks before we, we do this stuff. Uh, and right now the balance is way, way off. Yeah, the scales are tipped way on, uh, out, of, out of kilter. I, and I, I do think so many people are starting to see that, especially as they become less complacent and, and looking at these. But the, the EPA, and listen, I, I'm not against the EPA at all. There is brilliant minds in there that want to do the right thing. But it's frustrating when we have regulations that, you know, they don't allow studies first and show the agency the safety before they put them in the marketplace. They just get into the marketplace and they run through, you know, our water or land for 10, 15, 20 years. And then because studies cost so much and take so long, it feels like science catches up to policy a little late. And then we have a disaster when we might have been able to avoid that had we done some science or studies before we put that chemical into the marketplace. What well, say you're, you? You're seeing that. I'm sure you know this far better than I ever will about the perfluorinated and PFAS compounds that we're seeing. PF oh, absolutely. So that's a perfect example of where it's not just one chemical. It's a huge family of chemicals which have many of the same characteristics. And if you said you've got to prove, it, well, the way it currently works is, you know, hey, if you have a problem with one of those chemicals, you can prove that and we'll ban it. But we, we can come up with a new one that's a little different tomorrow. And we get to mm -hmm. one until you've been able to, to show us that this one is problematic as well. And I'm not stating the letter of the law precisely, but this is basically the way the burden of proof lies. So if you're creating new chemicals very quickly, you don't need to worry too much about the bans that are happening on things that you produced 10 years ago. In fact, most of the compounds that we're worried about in people's drinking water right now are things that were produced a long time ago and that aren't even being produced. So it's no sense no after they've been used for a while. Those things are persistent. They're in the groundwater and they're there to stay. Oh, and the, the PFOS is, is, I work on that throughout the United States and definitely in Australia. Um, it is mind blowing. And in Superman's not coming to see, we, uh, 
I, I, I have to understand things as a lay person and I never have any issue. I mean, I go through my insurance policy and I'm like, what the hell did that just mean? And they give it and they take it away. And I think it like, you know, squeezes people's brains when we start getting into, you know, these chemicals and how many of them that are there and how they don't, you know, want to even comprehend that information. It's frustrating to understand or want to believe and then have to find out the company has lied about something that cost us our health and welfare, our public health and welfare. You know, my dad um, always taught me, it's the lie that will always get you, Aaron. Uh, my dad was a mechanical engineer. He actually ran the pipelines for technical. Mine too. My dad uh, was a mechanical engineer. <laughs> yeah, I'm from a family of engineers, but he was right. It's the cover-up. It's that moment of deception that becomes our biggest problem. You know, one of the things and, time and time again in this is that people deceive themselves too. And that very true, you know, and that's what I say about the oil industry in the Gulf, right? It wasn't that people knew that something was going to happen that was bad and didn't tell anybody. It's that they had distrusted their initial instincts for long enough that they no longer felt those instincts. And they were, they, if you talk to the bubble of people, all of whom do the same thing for a living, of course you're not going to walk around saying, I think something's terrible going to happen. You know, I'm really worried that we're not ready for this. No, you're at your barbecues and your cookouts and everybody's patting each other on the back and, and you're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. That's your job and that's the way you have to approach when things are dangerous. We don't let kids drive cars without, with, you know, when they're 14 and can't get a license you say, well, you got to get a license. You got to get insurance. You have to be ready to accept the consequences of mistakes. And we've never really done that with our industries. No, we haven't. And I think that there's been either a level of, of trust or comfortability or complacency or a false illusion that, in fact, it was okay. And you're precisely right. And how or why we disconnected from that, I'm not sure. But that's right where you've got to be. This is where, on the BP oil spill... The, the fishermen fascinated me. They were absolutely one and connected to, to what was going on. And that's why, as we've said in the beginning, I think it's so valuable um, that people get back to even ownership. You know what? This is my backyard. This is my land. This is my water. This is my air. And be connected to it because, you know, None of this. It doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, black, white, Republican, Democrat. It doesn't matter. All of us, when it comes to this environment, will be impacted if we have no water, if all we have is polluted water and polluted land and polluted air. And I think that we need to own that again and rise up and gear up. Um, for me, you know, I'm always up for that fight to fight for this planet because that will be a fight for all of us. Yeah, I, for me, it's an easy one. I wake up in the morning, I look at my kids and I say, that's what I'm going to do. And, and to be clear, you know, I've done a lot of other things in my life as well. I worked at General Electric for years on environmental compliance issues, trying to make sure things were safe around the world. Um, I just came to a point that you came to earlier than I did, where I said, if I care about these things, if I care about my kids and the future and the world they're going to live in, if I care about people and the rest of the world who are living under terrible public health threats, terrible environmental risks, um, you got to fight. And uh, anyway, I'm, I'm proud to be on the. On the oh, you, 
<laughs> you and me could go on forever. I assure you this will not be our last long conversation. I've truly enjoyed it. But again, I get tired. And when I began my work in Hinkley, I looked at my children. I'm older now. They're grown up. I'm now a grandmother of four. And when my first granddaughter was born, before she was born, I was really feeling, you know, um, nostalgic. I, I was looking at a legacy, but at the same time, I, I felt so tired 20 years and how better off were we or not. And I'm a person too. But the minute she was born, for me, it was like, oh, game on. Because I don't want to give up and not leave anything other than a, a solid, safe environment for my grandchildren. So that really reinvigorated me and left me with the question, what will be my legacy? What will be all of our legacies to our children and our grandchildren? And I think a, a, a safe, clean planet, a sustainable one um, for their future is, is imperative. So that's the legacy that I'll continue to fight for, I, that I think you're going to do the same. Yeah, I think about what I want my my uh, my community, my kids to say about me when I'm gone. I don't care whether <laughs> I'd love for them to say a lot of a lot of nice things about me, but the most important one is he um, put his shoulder to the, to the to the wheel and tried to make the world a better place. There we you go, and that's a message for the people. I think in the work that you do and um, what what you do with Earth Justice and as an attorney and that sense of justice and it's so connected to the environment um, is that we need the people to connect again as well. We have to take ownership and accountability and responsibility. And it's okay if at, for a whole host of reasons, comfortability, complacency, listen, I've done it too, but that we make that connection again. And it will take our involvement to make that change. And so before or I go or wrap it up, you know, what is it that you, in all the experiences you've had, clearly, as I just said, uh, working with earth justice, the environment, um, you know, being commissioner under President Obama's administration and the BP oil spill and a disaster like that, what would you want to share with the people that they should know or maybe what they don't know for the people? I think we should recognize that uh, our, in our economy, and we need an economy, people need an economy to work, to have jobs, to put their kids through schools and put food on the table. Um, we have to make sure that that economy is working for everyone and not just the folks at the top. And one of the ways in which it has to work for everyone is to keep our future safe and not sell off our future for the sake of the present. And that's what I view my job as doing, protecting our future from the people who would profit in the present day without thinking about the future. You need to have a balance, as in all things, between using the things you have now and saving something for later. Um, and I recognize that for a lot of folks, that may not be an easy choice. Not everybody's living... Uh, with a whole lot of reserves, especially these days. But for most of the corporations that we're talking about, um, those corporations aren't people, and we should expect them to be thinking about the long term. And when they can't, we should be expecting our government, our regulatory machinery, and our communities to be thinking about the long term as much as they possibly can. 
You know, and that's a really uh, perfect closing. And you have just, I connect with words. And you just said something very key. It's a balance. And um, sometimes that can be difficult to do. But I, I think that there's so many moments where that balance is shifted around enough that we're seeing that we have to find that balance. But we, too have to be involved. I will always be in the corner and stand with the people. And oftentimes we don't want to talk about the economy is a part of that. We need the economy. Um, We all want to put our kids through college, right? We all want to be able to pay a mortgage. Isn't that our American dream? But sometimes when we talk about the economy, see, then it goes back to a one-sided thing and then people tend to pull away from the conversation. So I I hope that the conversation will continue. I have enjoyed this greatly. I'm so thankful that you were on the show today. And I want to thank you for the work that you do. And I look forward to working with you. Don't be afraid to call me and say, hey, we got this going on. because I'll be there. Um, I think it's great. And like I told you, you know, I usually end with, you know, the badass bitches. We always talk about that. But I'm going to give you the badass dude because, honestly, uh, the work that you do is badass. And I want to thank you. Well, I'm honored, and on behalf of 400 Earth Justice employees, 150 lawyers, and a lot of supporters out there, uh, I can I can say that we all uh, we all think of you as a hero, and we're we're proud to be associated with you. Well, I appreciate that, and I look forward to continued work. Not that I would like to say that we aren't going to have any more problems in the future, but you know, I think we're going to be bumping into each other because. Um, I, I'm not afraid to say it, but we're going to have a lot of work to do in the future. But I am more than proud to say it as we have these conversations and Earth, Joy, Earth Justice and I and so many others grab the hand of those people and we're going to rise up. And uh, I think we can find that balance. I think we can begin to make corrections. I think we need to know that it won't happen tomorrow, but we can begin that process for change. So thank you, Sam. Thank you. Thank you very much.